If you drive past horses and don't say horses, you're a psychopath. If you see an airplane but don't point it out, a rainbow, a cardinal, a butterfly. If you don't whisper shout albino squirrel, deer, red fox. If you hear a woodpecker and don't shush everyone around you into silence. If you find an unbroken sand dollar in a tide pool. If you see a dorsal fin breaking the water. If you see the moon and don't say, oh my god, look at the moon. If you smell smoke and don't search for fire. If you feel yourself receding, receding, and don't tell anyone until you're gone. That was poem beginning with a retweet by Maggie Smith, read by Carrie Radzinski, and she is on here with Olivia Hall today, um, and this is Poetry Snaps. I'm Sarah Krieg. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you. <laughs> it's so good to have you both on. Thank you. Um, why'd you choose that poem, Carrie? Um, I chose that poem actually because it reminds me of this moment when I was on tour with Olivia Hall. <laughs> we <else>? were, <laughs> was it in 2019, you think? Or earlier? I don't know. I don't know what the moment okay, is. Okay, sorry. <laughs> I thought you could read my mind. Um, so Liv and I have been touring around the country since about 2016 at mm. various times. And at one point we were driving from Dunedin to Christchurch. And I think Liv was driving and she's done that drive like a million times because she used to live down there. And I am the kind oh. of person who's plastered up against the window going, oh, my God, the mountains. Oh, my God, the ocean. You do do oh that my God, all the, trees. the time. Yeah. And so it just made me I love that poem. I think it's it like speaks to me on a yeah, human that makes level. a lot of sense to me. Um, but it also reminded me of this magical moment where Liv was like, what are this you doing? This is the most boring drive in New Zealand. <laughs> yeah. She was like, this drive is terrible. And I was like, a tree. And yeah. it was great. Yeah. It's green. Yes. That's yes. me all the time in New Zealand. Yes. But but in New Zealand, do you feel like you're like that in the States as well? Mm. No. Mm. Do you feel like you're like that when you are in London, Liv? Um, oh. I don't know. I just... Are you like controversial oh, opinion? Building. Controversial, yeah. Controversial <laughs> opinion. I don't care for nature. I am <laughs> mm. simply not a nature person. Give a, me a skyscraper. <laughs> a point of difference between us mm. Mm. and me and the rest of the world. That's okay. Yeah, that's fine. Mm. I'll build you a city. Thank you. I would like it to have big parks, but that's it. Mm. You're like, ooh, a park. Yes. Ooh, ooh, a cherry blossom and ooh, a squirrel, for yeah. sure. Yes, great. Yeah. That's it. That's it for me. I love that. Um, I guess the most basic question is, how do you two know each other? Oh, that's our favorite thing to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> you tell it. Okay, so 2016. I don't know. Well, we met at some point in I 2015. I know we met in 2015 at some stage. But in 2016, we had our, like, proper meet cute. Yeah. Um, when, That's a good way of describing it. Yeah. When Carrie came to Wellington to be a feature poet at a Poetry in Motion event. And I was um, one of the organizers of Perm at the time. Um, and I already knew Carrie's poetry because Carrie's famous. It's not true. Um, and so I thought she was cool. And I wanted her to think that I was cool. So I was very nervous. I was like, I have to do my best poem. I have to make this woman like me. Um, it worked. And it worked very well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and we spoke briefly at the event, I assume. Yes, I remember Long you walking enough up. Yeah. for me to be like, do you want to come to my house for tea tomorrow? Mm. A thing I have never asked anyone to do. I would say I asked you out more than I've ever asked any person <laughs> out. <laughs> Sorry, Alec. <laughs> yeah, because I was just like, come to my house. Well, I think tea. we were like aware of each other and we'd kind of mm. like vaguely been at poetry events very early yes. when I'd moved here. And so I was like vaguely aware of Liv. But we, yeah, that was like, I think our first meeting. So I went over to her house and yeah, like, swear to God, like was like, do you want to do a poetry show she together? She asked me that day. Yeah, because I was like, I need a friend, first of all. We did click very, very quickly. Instantly. Yeah. I felt instantly comfortable in a way that yeah. like I really was desiring for months in New Zealand. I'd left all these like really, really important female friendships back in the States who are still important to me and I still mm. nurture, but like I was looking for that desperately here and you were the first person that like clicked for me and I was like, Yes. 
let's yes. let's make it happen. So we we thought we were going to do one show in Wellington. Yeah, well, I agreed to do a single Wellington show <laughs> with Seven this years woman. That's <laughs> what I agreed to. Yeah. Um, but yeah. What we was loved that? It. What was that show? It was the earliest iteration of How We Survive. So we called it How We Survive. That's when we first came up with that yes, name. To be clear, I wanted to call it like Cunt Knives or something. <laughs> and Liv was like, absolutely <laughs> not. We're going to call it something so sweet Carrie says, and beautiful. You say I came up with How We Survive. You but did. I don't remember doing that yeah, at we, all. Yeah. And you also came up with the name for Hysterical, mm. our new show. So um, she's yeah, the so genius. It was, <laughs> it was like the earliest iteration of that. I think we wrote two group poems for it. We technically wrote three because the event got taken down oh, on yeah. Facebook by the men activists whoa what yeah. yeah part of the reason that we're here is because the very first show we did got a whole lot of buzz because a whole lot of men's rights activists reported the event for being a feminist event on facebook and said yeah. it was hate speech and it got taken down after hundreds of people had said they were interested um and it only made us stronger and then we got media attention because it had been taken down yeah and when we put it up again it genuinely got over a thousand people yeah. saying they were interested in the event yeah and we were doing a one-off show in a 80 seat yeah, if that. Bar, if yeah. that. We crammed people in. We added a second show that weekend because... We put my partner on the door and he had to turn people away at the door because mm. he, we had crammed every person we could into Cabin Club in Wellington. Yeah. So we wrote um, our, a poem about Hermione Granger for that show. We wrote a poem about Brock, Brock Turner, Turner, the Stanford rapist. And then we also kind of wrote this random like last minute yes. poem dedicated to those men who tried to take down our Facebook yes, event, which was true. great. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Um, were those, yeah. Were, do you know whether those men who tried to take down the event, were they from New Zealand or like? No you, idea. Mm. They were, they were kind of like very juvenile. Yeah. People had been, people had been posting on the page with just like, make me a sandwich. Yeah. Bog standard <laughs> kitchen jokes and things yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. But then I think we knew, like we got a message from Facebook saying your event's been taken down. Because it's considered to be hate speech, basically. So it was yeah. very clear what, yeah, what was happening. Happened. Yeah. 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 Mm. Far out. Thanks Far to those out. guys. Yeah. yeah. They've made yeah. us stronger, better. Yeah, they really. Yeah. <laughs> they <laughs> they really powered are. us. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, How We Survived, that was, what year was that, sorry? So that very first show was in 2016. 2016. Yeah, so we kind of did like some, we did some, smaller shows and touring mostly in Wellington and Auckland in 2016 and then 2017 and we went to a couple different places in 2017 mm, and just it wasn't I moved overseas yeah and it wasn't a theater show at that stage it was mm -mm. genuinely a reading in a bar and we just kind of like had a couple two or three group pieces yeah. together and we mostly just did random solo stuff and we would often like pick the set like minutes before we were going yeah. on stage like it wasn't a structured no curated event it was kind a of reading thing. very much so yeah it was a reading and then live 2019 yeah and then i moved so then i moved overseas in 2017 and so 2019 was our first proper national tour with a proper with a show, theater show in theaters that mostly be. mostly by then we were in theaters yeah and we had written a lot more group mm. material yeah and, and so that it became, was it came together much more like a show and so that was the sort of finalized version of how we survive yeah and that's when we did the book as well yeah and how is Hysterical, which is the latest show, how is that connected to How We Survive? Because, I mean, mm. I imagine that there are, like, some quite similar themes. And hmm. I think there are similar things, themes, um, but I think – and there's connections just in that, like, we wrote both shows and mm, that there yeah. are things that we wanted to speak about and expand on and respond to even mm. – um, you know, Harry Potter was a huge part of the first show in 2019 mm. um, and specifically focused on Hermione Granger as a feminist role model for us. And we knew that we wanted to address J.K. Rowling's transphobia and just like what a nightmare she is in this show and yeah. kind of call back. So there are definitely callbacks for people who have seen both shows. And it's mm. been really amazing to have for the true fans. Yeah. yeah, yeah. For yeah. the true fans. <laughs> That's what I want. I want us to yeah. be the Taylor Swift's of poetry i, I want us like dropping easter eggs in our shows there for are our next eggs. shows that's actually my dream because like to be honest <laughs> in in how we survive for such a our, our favorite i don't want to speak for you but one of our favorite poems was our brock turner oh 100 <laughs> right? you can speak for me okay thank you um 
it's called Brock Turner's father also has a daughter. And it was just a really heavy heading banger of a slam poem. It's the first banger we wrote together. <clears throat> and I love and I love that poem, right? And Me it was too. it was kind of iconic, I think, in the show. Lots of people spoke to us about it. And in our new book for Hysterical, the very first quote that opens the book mm. is by Chanel Miller, who was Brock Turner's victim. So um, that does feel like an Easter egg. Yeah, it's an Easter egg, right? So like we, there are things that are just woven together. There are things that we're responding to. There's things that to us felt really important. But then we're very different. And I think we talk about this a lot and we spoke about it a lot when we were writing Hysterical that we're really different people now from mm. when we wrote How We Survive. Yeah. And also with How We Survive, it wasn't just that we wrote material then. We were using poems that both of us had written in the years prior. So some of that material, you know, was older even then. Um, whereas this time around, you know, everything that is in Hysterical, we wrote within the last year mm -hmm. specifically for Hysterical. And so mm. I think it encapsulates really well who we are and where we're at now as people that, like everyone else, have been living through a global <laughs> pandemic yeah, um, and all of that jazz. So, so I mean, yeah. how, how do you think you have changed, um, like, potentially personally, but also, like, as poets and performers mm. um, since How We Survive? Yeah, I mean, I think we've grown, and I think we wanted to push ourselves a lot with Hysterical in terms of the writing and the performing and how much it felt like a theater show, I think. Mm. Because I I think poetry as theater is awesome. Mm. Um, and I love the things that you can do with that. And so we had a lot of conversations about that. And I think basically, like Carrie said, also thinking about what we'd said and how we survive. Because it's not like how we survive is a show that's been seen by thousands and thousands of people. But it has been seen by people who we knew would probably come to the next show. Mm. And it felt important to reflect on where our views on things had developed or mm. things had happened in the world that meant we wanted to address them in a particular way. I think How We Survive focused, we were at a different place with our feminism, I think, and it mm. focused on, whether intentionally or unintentionally, it focused on differences between specifically men and women at the mm. time. Mm. And I think we, whether we intended to, sometimes I think men sometimes felt like, oh, I can't come to this. It's this feminist thing. I'm going to be shamed during this kind mm. of two hours or whatever, mm. hour and a half. And in Hysterical, I think that we've grown as feminists as well as poets and performers. And it we're looking yeah. at the systematic problems that are happening and we're not pointing our fingers at a group of people and saying, you know, you've messed up. Mm. We're saying, what can we collectively do? And mm -hmm. ideally, like calling people and men into the conversation instead of mm. making them feel ostracized in mm. the conversation for yeah. for stuff. I feel like we've unpacked that a lot in the writing yeah. of the show. And think, yeah, I think we spoke much more openly about not wanting to reinforce binaries mm -hmm. and things like that in this mm. show. Yes. And spoke so, I mean, the gift of being given funding to write a show and being able to write everything specifically for this show meant that we got to think about the narrative and what we wanted to say really, really clearly. Yeah. And so I think also having a lot of conversations about who we are and where we sit in terms of our identities and yeah. our life experiences and figuring out, yeah, really wanting to walk the line appropriately in terms of knowing what the show can do and what it can encompass and also being aware of and knowing what the show can't do because of who we are, which mm, is it can't yeah. speak for all women. Mm. Um, yeah. And, you know, yeah, figuring out the best way to do that in a way that would make lots of people feel included and feel like they could see bits of themselves in the show without mm. co-opting experiences in any way that aren't ours. Mm. Yeah. That's, that's quite the evolution. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we've also just, we just have been through a lot, both of us both personally lot, in the last yeah. few years. And so mm. that obviously comes into it too, just in terms of yeah. what it is that we want to write about and mm. things like that. Yeah. Um, something that I thought about while I was preparing for this um, was that obviously, I feel like obviously just because of the title of the show, um, in Hysterical, you talk a lot about crying mm. um, and also the connection between crying being perceived as something feminine mm. and also being perceived as something weak. Mm -hmm. um, and something I'm interested in 
um, is to what extent you think that being able to emote is necessary for being able to write poetry, write and perform, be a poet as well. Mm. Mm. Because I feel like there's probably in a lot of people's minds like quite a close connection between being emotionally vulnerable and um, writing poetry. Um, mm. But I think, yeah, I don't know. I just thought that that was that there's that there might be a connection between like is is it possible to um n- not be able to be emotionally vulnerable and like still really be able to I don't know tap into your poetic potential that sounds mm. I mean but. sure you could but <laughs> don't know that it's going to be good mm. um yeah no, I think there's also this element of like what's the kind of poetry that I like to read and what's the kind yes. of poetry that I connect to and obviously like so much art I think poetry is sub- a lot of it is can feel really subjective right there's going to be poems that I read in books and I'm like oh gosh like really this is the piece that mm. felt like it smashed it for you mm. but I think that that's part of why I love performance poetry and why I love the experience of live art is seeing somebody experience emotion and even somebody who doesn't feel like they're going to get up and emotionally connect to their piece when you put it in front of an audience and you're feeling that buzz and you're feeling that vulnerability and you have to actually say those words out loud something shifts right something breaks and so I think that that's part of why we both write the way that we do and what we write about and then bringing it in front of a live audience just makes that all come together Mm. but Mm. of course somebody who's not super emotional can write a poem but Mm. I think that it's it's the kind of poetry that I connect to, I think, is one mm. that feels it taps into a vulnerability, I guess, mm. and an honesty. I think I'm always looking for something real mm. in what I am experiencing. Mm. Even if that's in fiction, there's still truth and, you yes. know? I think, I think I, everything I do in my life is better when I am emotionally connected to what Mm. I'm doing. Mm. And I think that's true for me in my work and what I've chosen to study and Mm -hmm. where my academic background is now. Mm. Um, It's true in my relationships. It's true in my writing. Mm. And it's true in performing for me. And Carrie and I have talked a lot more on this tour, I think, just because it comes up a lot about how we came to performance poetry from different sides. And Carrie came to it more from a writing side and I came to it more from a performing side. Mm. Um, And so I think... That's always been really true for me. That's, you know, theatre and acting and performing was such a big part of my life growing up. But I know that it's always been really important for me to find some sort of emotional way into anything that I'm doing, mm. um, even if it's not something that I've written. Mm. Um, and so that just feels doubly important when mm-hmm. it's work that I'm writing and then sharing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, interesting that you talk about the two different routes that mm. you took to poetry. Mm. Um I'm curious whether you both consider yourselves poets in the first instance. Like if somebody asks you, like, what's your jam? Would you say that you're a poet? Yeah. Carrie, you say yes? Mm-hmm. It's taken me a really long time to get there. Mm. I felt like a real fraud calling myself a poet for a really, really, really long time. Mm. But you're so good. Um, when we flew back into New Zealand and I had to, like, write down my occupation oh, yeah. on my form to enter the country Mm. I was coming back knowing that I was coming back to be a poet full-time for a while and to do the tour and things I just remember sitting there being like I'm gonna have to write poet here and I really didn't want to I like really wanted to tap out and just put writer or like something else and my partner was like just you are literally here to be a poet (laughs) like write it um so I did and I, I think that feels big for me I think that word has yeah has a lot of meaning to me and is something that I value a lot and because I felt like I came to it from the performance side for so long, mm. it felt illegitimate to me for a long time to use mm. it. But now I would. Mm. I just saw a million lawyers last night and th- every one of them asked me what I did and I said poet. So uh, that felt good. Great. Yeah. The Fantastic. number of barbecues I've been at where an accountant <laughs> is like, so poetry, um, what's a poetry slam? And I'm like, fucking kill me right now. Like, just smother me in barbecue, put me on the barbecue. Like, I'm done. <laughs> can't take it anymore (laughs) yeah I love that though because I mean like that's part of the reason why I wanted to do this podcast is to sort of like 
answer some of those questions. Mm. Like when people are like poet, like what do what do poets do? Mm. Like this. <laughs> yes, I think my sister said to me very early on when I graduated college. And I didn't study poetry, but um, I went, you know, when I finished college and I was waitressing, um, she was like, you are a poet who who waitresses in her free time. You are not a waitress who does poetry in her free time. And I've mm. always thought about that. That was a really like, oh, you know, 15 years ago. Kind like of old thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, it's always stuck with me that and I've always felt that like even right now I have a full time job that is not involved in a creative sphere at all. But. I am a poet first and that is just my backup gig even mm. though it's what's paying my bills at the mm. you know in some ways mm. this is also paying my bills mm. right now um but yeah I think I've always since my sister said that to me always thought of myself first as a poet mm. Mm. was it Liv was it for you the moment of like I'm coming back into the country to do poetry that made you give yourself yeah that I think so I think it's funny language. Mm -hmm. It's funny. Yeah, it's just funny the way I think about language and what we use. I've shied away from ages for, for ages from calling myself an educator in any way as well, mm. even though I do lots of work in that sphere. Mm -hmm. and I've just taken another job in that sphere. And so I've started to be like, have to say, I have to add educator now. I have to say poet and educator. Mm -hmm. um, and I just think, I think my background, because my academic background is in gender and that already comes with all of that same stigma I think that you'd mm -hmm. get if you said that you were a poet in a particular room saying that you're a gender major is going to have some of the same impact mm. um, and I faced a lot of what are you going to do with that um, and so I think I've always just been really nervous about using language that I didn't feel like I'd be able to back up properly mm. um, you know you're scared that you'll be like I'm a poet and they'll be like right well where can I read your stuff who's published you um, and things like that so I think I was yeah scared about that and getting funding for mm. the show made a really big difference to that being like these people think that we've done good work and deserve to be funded <laughs> as artists twice mm. yeah mm. multiple times over really helped with that so yeah it was definitely knowing when I left my job in London that I was giving myself space to just do this but also whatever else sort of called to me in a creative sense for a little bit of time made me be like that's that's the gig there's nothing else actually don't have another job to hide behind in the same way. Mm. And so that's actually kind of been useful. Mm. Mm. Can I ask what other kind of work you've done mm. outside of poetry? Yeah, totally. Um, I actually worked for a tech startup for a long time while I was living overseas, um, which I got into through debating. I was a competitive university debater. You are um, very competitive. Yes. Um, and so I worked for this tech startup and I was with it for a really long time as it grew. And it gave me the ability to live in New York where my partner was studying there and the ability to fund my master's when I moved to London. So um, that was a really good gig for the time in my life that I was at. And then the plan was to leave that after I'd finished my master's. And I really wanted to work with... Um, in, in organizations, particularly I'm very invested in sexual violence prevention. So that was the sphere I really wanted to go into. Um, and then there was a pandemic <laughs> um, and moving what? from my <laughs> nice corporate job to a uh, NGO or a charity did not feel doable mm. while also being able to afford living in London. So um, I was a volunteer with Rape Crisis in London and that was sort of how mm. I kept that side of my life going. Mm. Um, and I finished that job at that startup when I left London just a couple of months before I left London um, and now that's still very much the sphere that I sort of want to get into alongside my creative work and so I'm just about to start teaching a program in schools about healthy relationships and consent so great that will it's be not the other educating spreading not the gospel. I get to do not directly poetry related but I want to hear more about <laughs> more about that program what is it called uh, it's called the mates and dates program it's an ACC program oh, great. Um, which they fund in high schools around the country. Um, and so I'm going to get to do it in a bunch of Auckland schools, which will be awesome. And cool. it's, yeah, really, really nice. And, and it's realistically a job that I get to do because I have experience teaching poetry now in schools. Mm -hmm. And so I got to line up the fact that I have some classroom experience with the fact that I have a lot of gender-based knowledge and, mm -hmm. yeah, combine those two, which I'm genuinely very, very excited about. Cool. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Excellent opportunity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm going to pivot slightly mm. um, to talk about 
your sort of involvement in both of your involvement in poetry, like scenes, mm. bunny ears around scenes. Um, because Carrie, you've been part of the Auckland poetry scene. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I believe you once called me the mother of the I was going to say, I believe you are the Auckland poetry yeah. scene. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm not. It's very, uh, it's a lot of responsibility. <laughs> I don't want any children. So. <laughs> Look, we're all aunties in some way. Yeah. Um, Always a godmother, never a god. Ooh. <laughs> um, can for I guess because there there'll be people listening who don't know much about the the I guess like the Auckland poetry scene and like what your experience of poetry in Auckland is like. Can you can you talk a little bit like to that? What kind what kind of like spaces you're part of specifically? Yeah. Well, I think there are a lot of there's like a plethora of poetry and open mics in Auckland. So I can only speak to my experience and props to everybody who's started events and kept events going because it's effing hard. Yeah. Um, Shout out. Shout out. Yeah. (laughs) Um, As as, uh, one of the co-founders of the Jaffa Poetry Slam um, that's been running since, like literally since I landed in the country in 2015. um, You wrote on your... um on your arrival sheet, you wrote yeah, Jaffa yeah. Poet. Jaffa <laughs> Poet. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, it's just, yeah, I've, did, I've done that work for free for many, many years. And Jaffa just got their first official big CNZ funding, which is really thrilling to have a bit of money behind us. Um, well done, CNZ. Yeah, well done. Um, and so, yeah, I think that Auckland, specifically in the slam scene, which is the competitive form of performance poetry, um, Jaffa sends the Auckland representatives to the National Poetry Slam. So we've had several national champions come out of our scene, which is really awesome. And I think there is a really like, I think there's a really strong friendship and family vibe at our events that people are supporting one another and excited to see one another and that there's a real buzz and creativity. Like I, I love it and I feed off of it. And I think there's a real like pulse there of, of people coming together to not only compete, but to share words and to have fun. And we do a lot of fun events like Super Duper Boom Boom Fight Night Slam, which is actually going to come up next month, um, which is our team slam. And yeah, we just try to do some fun stuff as well as sending our representatives to the national scene. So yeah, it's it's a fun time. It's a, It can be competitive, but we also, I think, can... Um, and I, who co-founded Jaffa, we wanted to bring this element that like, in New Zealand, there were a lot of big cash prize slams before we arrived here, and people were only slamming one time a year for like $1,000. And that just seemed insane. Like, that's just not, it should be like a, we were coming from spaces where we were slamming every week for like $10, you know? Mm-hmm. And it and it was just a thing you did because you loved it. And so we wanted to take some of the pressure off of slamming by doing it more frequently for less money for mm-hmm. just a vibe, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so I don't know, maybe we've destroyed things but that was our that was our intention so and hopefully Olivia Hall is going to slam if I can convince her this year (laughs) we'll see why do you think why do you think you've destroyed things I just like you know I don't know if those big cash prizes still exist but I mean it's not about the money it's about the poetry (laughs) (laughs) the point is not the dollars yes (laughs) yes um I mean I saw you perform Live the mm. other day at, at my the very open first night. Jaffa. Yeah, yeah. it's the very first Jaffa event, mm. um, which is wild. It's been part of my life for as long as you've been as part I of know. my life. Yeah, I've just never been in Auckland when it's been on. Yeah, yeah. Um, were you part of Motif poetry scenes down in Wellington? Or? No, Motif wasn't in Wellington when I lived in oh. Wellington. Um, so when I first got into poetry, when I lived in Wellington, which was in twenty. 20- 13 mm. um poetry in motion was very much the big mm. event in wellington every month um and that's where i first slammed that's where i first found a poetry community mm. um who were very very welcoming um and who i loved mm. um and so i worked as part of the pim team and was one of the organizers for the time that i lived there mm. um I went to Dunedin somewhere in the middle there for a year and a half. And then when I came back, I was still part of PIM for a couple of years while I lived in Wellington again. Um, and so when I moved overseas in 2017, 
yeah, Ben and Zara of Motif were also still overseas at that mm-hmm. stage. So um, it was before they'd come back and set it up. So yeah, Pim was really my New Zealand poetry community. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How, what differences do you notice between the Wellington poetry scene that you experienced, I mm. guess, like shifts and changes since then and what you perceive in Auckland? Um, I think, yeah, I think it's, about the specific years that I was there as well, not even necessarily about the overall scene because I haven't been part of the Wellington scene now for mm. five years. Mm. Um, there were a lot of men. There were a lot of men that were very, very good and very, very great when I was there, but it didn't feel like there were a lot of women. Mm. Um, there was a lot of pun poetry. Yeah, there was a lot of – it was like there, it was Wellington was going through a phase of very comedic poetry on the whole. Mm-hmm. And that was what they loved and that was the vibe and that was great because we had poets who were really, really good at that, poets that I love and really respect. Um, but it meant that at times I probably felt a little bit isolated. Like I didn't have people like Carrie who I felt like were writing the same sort of poetry as me. Mm. Um, and so I didn't really feel like I had people that could be mentors or things like that. I really just felt like this kid that had showed up mm. and was – gonna do whatever I could because that was my jam but you smashed it but you were kind of like odd woman out a bit yeah and that was how it felt a little bit Mm. um but I had really great friends and they were all awesome um I just knew that yeah it wasn't quite the same but I was a little bit scared of the Auckland scene at that stage we're Auckland scene's always been really political at least like since I've been involved Mm. in it I feel like it's always been yeah slammy and political and it's Mm. and and digging into identity and things like that. Mm. Mm. And I think because you are, and I see it now, like I loved being at Jaffa and the vibe was so good. But I think if you're outside of that and you do feel a little bit isolated in your community or like you're just in a place that's sort of figuring itself out and we were sort of doing that in Wellington, I think you look at that and it's easy to be a little bit envious of how big and hype you up the Auckland Mm. team is of each other. And I think I felt like, Obviously, they benefited from you and Ken coming and creating something that looked more similar probably to what exists in the US, mm. which is my experience of poetry in the US. Yeah. That, that you know, you have a venue that you're really attached to. Yes. You have a family and a community at that venue and yeah. they totally go to bat for each other. They totally hype each other up. And I think that's such a cool space and community that you've created at Jaffa. Mm. But I reckon that because that doesn't exist in the same way in other parts of the country, it can be really easy to look at that and be like, oh, <laughs> that feels like I can't be part of that. And no, it's that's sad. A, that's a really good read because in the States, um, Nat, the, they used to, it stopped now, but the National Poetry Slam ran for so long. And so different venues, mm. different cities would send teams to compete against one another, but they would also be multiple teams from the same city were, from different venues. Because it's based on venues. venue rather than mm. yeah. city. So yeah. you really are attached to like a home venue. You're, yeah, yeah. And you're, that was my experience when I got to New York. It was like, choose a venue. Like, yes. Yeah, and that's that's your home. And that's your home, exactly. You, like ride or die. But I love that. And I think that is what Jeffer is in Auckland, which I think is so cool. Mm. And I would love for it to be possible for that to exist mm. more so elsewhere, I think. Yeah. I think yeah. it's interesting that you talk about the venue um, because, like, Cityside Baptist, mm-hmm. well, I love them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Stu, his name's mm-hmm. Stu, right? Stu McGregor, yep. Yeah, he's crack up. Mm-hmm. Loved his poem on the open mic the other mm-hmm. night. Yeah, yeah, he's Fantastic. great, yeah. Um, but um, I sometimes wonder if there are some people who see the venue mm. and are concerned purely by the fact that it is a church because they might not know mm-hmm. much about the cope-up of the space. Mm. Um, and, yeah, I, I just wonder, like, what what your sort of, like, take on that response to that is, like, what you wish people could know mm. um, yeah, about we, the venue. Yeah, we've had a lot of different venues um, over the years of, we even ran stuff down at MIT and Otara for a few months when we first started. And then we were at Merge Cafe on K Road for a long time. They were really awesome. We even ended up at the Peace Place, which is like a little tiny, almost like conference room with like many different religions represented inside of it. We were just like, we need a cheap as venue, you know. Um, and then we ended up at Cityside because um, different friends of ours had used it as a performance space and were like, hey, this is kind of a cool 
um, space. So yeah, it's a bit like reclaiming the space. I think every time we go in it, it, I forget that we are in a church every time I'm in there. Um, and yeah, I think it's just like the, the crew comes in and we just kind of, it's about poetry. It's about sharing space. It's about kind of having a relaxed environment at the moment. And we might move into more theater spaces or other um, spaces going forward. We're not like necessarily attached to staying at Cityside, but it's been a good home for us. And I, at, during, especially during our pandemic years, I think of this non-pressure there's, you know, bean bags and pillows and yeah, like just kind of come and sing around them, you know, sit and, and vibe together around mm. the mic, you know? Mm, mm. And I think, I mean, yeah, I definitely forget that I'm in a church when mm. I'm, when I'm in there. Also yeah. just because like n- none of the poetry is censored. No, <laughs> no, it's not censored. Um, yeah. We don't tolerate hate speech, obviously. Yeah, yeah. But I think also That's- even by charging money, you're cutting out some of those people that would come and maybe, you know, like if they're going to come and disrupt, like they had pay to come in to do that, you know, and I have no problem yeah. taking them out if they yeah. if they wanted to, but I've sat, them through, out. I've, I've sat through <laughs> so much bad poetry and not like, I'm not even saying that rude way, like just like misogynistic, sexist, racist, like mm. homophobic. I've sat through all of that stuff in spaces and there's just no tolerance for it in Jaffa. Yeah. Like we just don't, that's not the space that we're trying to create. And yeah. so it's uncensored. You can say what you want, but if you're going to be cruel, we're going to ask you to leave. So yeah. 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 I've, I've, I don't think I've ever, in in my time being part of Jaffa, I don't think I've ever heard a poem where mm. I've felt that someone was being attacked or bullied or mm-hmm. um, directly hated on. Um, no, and I would send Jessica Fenton up to that person <laughs> yeah. and ask her with her head girl energy to yes. remove that person. Remove that person. <laughs> She's yeah. my bodyguard. She would. Yeah. she would, 100%. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Did you um, live? Did you feel that when you were when you were in the space? Did you feel like? Did you forget you were in a church? Yeah, definitely, one hundred percent. And I think that just comes from like I grew up through speech competitions and debating, and like I've been doing like some form of uncensored performing or competing in random spaces mm-hmm. because that's just how those things go. Like I've mm-hmm. debated in churches. Mm-hmm. We hold massive debates in big churches around the country all the time when we were at university and they were, mm. you know, equally uncensored and often talking about mm. subjects that <laughs> were wild to have in a church. So, yeah, I don't think it yeah, bothers me yeah. that much. But I think, yeah, definitely Cityside is a particular example of where you forget it pretty much instantly. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Um, did you perform when you were in London? Yeah. What kind of spaces were you in there? Um, I didn't. I didn't get to perform nearly as much as I would have liked because the three, almost three and a half years I was there, two of them I was in some form of lockdown. Yeah, yeah. functionally. Yeah. Um, but you need to brag right now because you've, um, you've won things. Um, but the I I did the thing that I think I learned from the UK, which is like I found my home venue. I went to a few different places in uh, London, but I fell in love with a particular place called Genesis. Shout out um, Genesis. Shout out Genesis, which actually was run by Ben and Sarah of Motif when they oh. lived in the UK. So <laughs> that's great. We basically crossed in the sky and they came to New Zealand and I just like moved into Genesis, um, which was held amazingly in this very cool like movie theatre in the UK, in London. Love that. Um, which just like upstairs had this big open space with a bar and the cinemas were downstairs, and so they just gave it to Genesis once a month to host there, which was wicked. It, I, tickets were free. You paid like a $1 or $2 booking fee to go to Genesis. Um, did you? And did otherwise you, it was great. Did you find that um, there were ever any people who took advantage of the access, the easy access to? Not in my experience. Again, Genesis... I think sets itself up culturally the same way as Jaffa. Yeah. Um, their slams, for example, so they, they do a slam every month during the sort of competitive season. Their slams are set up so that there are spaces held for men, held for women, and held for non-binary and trans performers. Oh, and they would, interesting. They would so the slam is sort of split up that way because it would be really popular to jump in and grab slam spots. So mm. they do that to try and ensure 
diversity of voices mm. on the mic at every event, which is really cool. Mm. Um, and yeah, I just think culturally it was set up in such a way that you would be booed off the stage if you were and um, causing problems. Did you happen to win something <laughs> there or go to a national <laughs> final at some point? Uh, yes, yeah. I was the 2019 Genesis Slam champ, which oh. was my dream. They gave me a crown, which actually does make it the best yes. slam I've ever won. That's great. Does Honestly. Need a crown? Yeah, let's yeah, make like, one. Let's a get it. Oh, my gosh, 100%. Yes. I'll show you mine. I obviously okay. have kept mine. Obviously. Um, genuinely. Wear it during I, hysterical. I, I will. There's actually a hilarious video because after I won, they made me read like an encore poem, but they made me read it with the crown on oh, my head. Yeah. Filmed it, put it on YouTube. I look like which a wild person. I would love poem for Alec oh, because I yes. it was a random encore poem. Um, but. Yeah, I am very competitive, and genuinely, that day when they posted on Twitter, being like, "We've bought a crown for whoever wins," I was uh, like, "I've well, got to win now." I didn't, you know, I was feeling okay about it. Now I, I actually must have that red diamante ruby crown. <laughs> yes. um, so that was great, and yeah, it meant that I got to go to the UK national final, which was rad. Mohammed was Mohammed Hassan was also in that national final. So shout out, we Mahesh. love to have some New Zealand representation yeah. <laughs> yes. in the UK slam scene. Love it. Love it. Um, and uh, how did you, you said that you, again, you said that you came from a performance background. You mm. said that you were doing debating mm. at uni. What was like your first slam? Did you do any like, Slam poetry at high school? Or like- no, but when I was in my last year of high school, I got taken by my English teacher, my whole writing class did, to um, an event at Auckland Writers Festival that Sonia Renee Taylor performed at. Mm. Um, so that was the first time I'd ever seen performance poetry. Mm. Um, and because she writes so much about her body and about living in a fat body, that it spoke to me very immediately and very intensely. Um, and so I sort of like tucked that away in my back pocket. I was like, that's very cool. But I, that's the only experience I've had of it as far as I was concerned. It didn't exist in New Zealand. Um, and then I totted off to university and was really, really focused on debating for a few years. Um, and then did, I think, the classic thing, which is watch 100 videos on YouTube of US performance poets. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and was like, oh, this is really cool. And also I am an... I'm a person that likes performing and I'm a naturally competitive person. And I was coming to the end of my university debating career and I was like, surely I need some other form of competition. Yeah. <laughs> so right. I looked it up, saw that Poetry in Motion existed in Wellington. I told no one that I was going. I was like, this could go terribly and then I don't want anyone to know that it's happened. Mm. Um, so my partner, who's my current partner, um, at the time we were in a long distance relationship. So I told him that I was going and he was the only person that knew. And I just rocked along to this slam and was like, I'm not even going to do an open mic first because I'll psych myself out. I'm just going to enter this slam and see what happens. And what happened? I came second to Mark Raffles. (gasps) Mark (laughs) Raffles, are you joking? No. Oh, my God. Yeah, Mark won that slam and I came second. And so we both qualified for the Wellington regional final. This is my dream story. Yeah. And I met Travis and I just felt head over heels in love with yeah, space. because hilariously, Ken and I were the very first features at, at Poetry Poetry Emotion. Like, yeah. like there had never been one, and Ali Jacks like put put this event on, and so mm-hmm. I met Travis and Mark and mm. Ali all at that event as well. So mm. yeah, our lives are intertwined. They are. I love it. I love it. Yeah, it's adorable. Um, Carrie, we've spoken a little bit before about how you got into poetry. Um, we spoke about it on on our other wheel. on third mm-hmm. wheel. Yeah. If you want to access that, it's on all your podcasting apps. No, um, <laughs> uh, but um, can you tell me a little bit about your first ever slam? slam? Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to remember. Um, I might have actually slammed in like London for one of the first times. I was studying abroad there. But I'd, I'd been a poet and reading at this open mic uh, my home venue in Boston for a long time, but I'd not started. But you'd not slammed. I hadn't. I didn't slam for years. What? Yeah, yeah. It was a very. I did not know this yeah, about you. Yeah, from like 2005 to like 2007, I didn't. You were just reading on open mics was, and not slamming. Yeah, yeah. It was a thing. Inconceivable I was to me. 18 years old. <laughs> Inconceivable to me. Um, and yeah, and I, um, I got broken up with in 2007, and it was a huge breakup in my life and I wrote 
my first ever banger of a slam poem. Oh, do it. Um, elbows. Yes. <laughs> the last line of which literally destroyed me the first yeah. time I heard it. I think it had that effect it on me a up. lot of people. Yeah, that that breakup really fucked me up. So. Um, oh, but it gave but yeah. you the first banger. Yeah, I'm. Sh- I might have slammed like occasionally before that, but I remember coming back to Boston and having that poem just changed everything. And I just started competing like more and more regularly. Like come 2008, like I came back like a different woman. I was like, I've been broken, and I'm I'm a phoenix, and I had to live with my ex boyfriend in an apartment, and oh he God. had to listen to me nope. read that poem <laughs> constantly. Yes, like a broken record. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, and I put out my first album around that time as well. So, like, yeah, I started competing regularly. And in 2000, I think maybe it was that same year, 2008 to 2000. Yeah, 2008, I went to my first college national poetry slam. So I wasn't a high school poet, what we would call a youth poet mm-hmm. in the States, but I went to college nationals and won best female poet um, at that slam. Yes. Yeah. Of, yeah, I know somebody created somebody th- those titles had never existed before. And mm-hmm. my friend Sean at the time was like, um, we are making these titles. Best male poet, best female poet. Joshua Bennett was named best male poet. Mm-hmm. He's now like a Pulitzer Prize kind of person. And I won best female poet and I live in New Zealand. So that's <laughs> it. Yeah. Yeah. About you live in New Zealand and you're touring with a poetry show. So. Yes. Hello. Um, so... I guess like connected to this idea of like being young and doing poetry and like Mm. or like also not like potentially knowing where the where your poetry space is and also this idea of like not being sure whether to call yourself a poet or Mm. not um what's like it sounds really cheesy but whatever what's like a piece of advice you would give young poets I would say especially young femme poets Mm -hmm. in New Zealand who are, like, looking for a space to, like, explore um, performance especially, but, I mean, also just, like, writing, finding, like, uh, finding finding a social space to Mm. be a poet with other poets. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's great – I think poetry has been through a real, and performance poetry in particular, has been through a real boom in New Zealand. Yes, definitely. Um, It felt like coming back after being away for nearly five years felt really different. Yeah. And like there has been this massive boom, which is great because I think it means people are more aware of it existing. Mm -hmm. um, And so probably have a better chance of seeking out spaces, whether that's open mics or places like Jaffa and Motif and Pim. Mm. Um, And that is basically always where I would tell people to start. Like, go along, even if you're too scared to read, just go along and listen and, you know, talk to the poets that Mm. read things that really speak to you. Mm. Um, Because often the best way to start, I think, is with specific relationships with other artists who are doing things that you admire. There's, like, nothing safer or more useful to me creatively than the fact that I would give Carrie a first draft of anything I wrote and know that she will hold it and, you know, treat it with care. And Um, love it. (laughs) Yeah. And hype me up one way or another while also helping me make it better. And so I think, I think those relationships are so important. And actually what I felt like I was missing really early on. And so that is what I would, yeah, I would advise doing anything you can to try and cultivate. Yeah. I think similarly on like a smaller scale, even like you can go, I think definitely go to open mics, go to slams, go to theater events, go to live art, but also find a person or two that you trust, right? Like completely before, um, not before, but like simultaneously when I started going to open mics, I also created like a poetry club at my college and it was like genuinely like initially just five or six of us who would gather and read poems to one another and cultivating our own safe space not necessarily an echo chamber we could still critique and still give feedback to one another but a safe space is really important especially when you're starting I think Mm. and so um, yeah just even pulling a friend or two if you're in high school like and saying hey let's let's bounce this off one another hey do you want to hear this like I think that's really important Mm -hmm. to nourish that spark Mm. Mm. Yeah, because I think some people find that space in the classroom, mm-hmm. um, or have like a group at high school that they can write with. But then they go to university, and it's like daunting. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah absolutely. Uh, yeah. 
sort of uprooted and um, need to find new spaces. But yeah, mm-hmm. I guess I guess I have a similar experience that like talking to people at Jaffa mm. is what sort of gave me the uh, confidence isn't really the right word. I guess maybe safety mm. to keep being a poet in that space, just like knowing that mm. um, that I had the support that other people cared about me in that space yeah <laughs> totally yeah yeah i think i think people the the thing that makes people nervous right is the sharing out loud and mm. the sharing out loud is actually different than performance right there's yep. there's kind of different levels to it and yeah. sharing out loud is the first scariest step up to the cliff and it sometimes feels like the performance is the leap off the cliff it's mm. it's when you reach another level it's when you are not just vulnerably reading on a page but embodying and inhaling that poem to then gift it back to mm. someone else right and mm. so yeah, there's different steps to what you are doing when you choose to share things out loud. Mm. And sometimes it's important to to just lean into it. If you have that inkling and that instinct that you want to do it, then then lean into it, then follow it. Mm. Um, you were saying how there's like a difference between reading your poem aloud and performance. And I'm going to take that even further to sort of come back around to mm-hmm. hysterical because mm-hmm. um, you were saying that like the early iterations of how we survive were just poetry Re- the early iterations mm. of how we survive were mm-hmm. really just poetry reading the poetry like performing the poetry mm-hmm. but it was a poetry show mm-hmm. rather than like a theater mm-hmm. whereas yeah. I f- feel like from from what you've told me hysterical is like an even more theatrical iteration of of performance mm-hmm. for, for yeah. your for your poetry what um I know that you worked with Dan mm-hmm. a little bit as well in developing that what did you sort of learn about um putting poetry in into a, a theater context what sort of mm. we I can't even tell you like a, a year we've worked on the show for I don't know like nine months before we started performing it so mm-hmm. that was including like research about topics for what we were writing about about the about writing about rewriting about a thousand times some certain poems have like 10 different drafts yeah. to them um and editing and then re- cultivating that for the book and then cultivating that for the show but in between all of that as well there were all these spaces in which we were working with different creatives and developing our own ideas about how to how to lean into the theatrical performance element where can we not be speaking between poems that allows poems to naturally transition into one another where can we be using lights or audio in order to enhance or change the vibe of what's happening um, something that I love about slam, and there, but really, when I say slam, I really mean this uninhibited performance is being able to step up and almost and not have to apologize for being absolutely fierce or absolutely hysterical or absolutely wild, you know, in a in a poem and getting to actually be that. Um, And so, yeah, it's been really amazing to cultivate those moments as well as getting to be ourselves on stage, connect Mm. with one another and connect with the audience. Um, Yeah. 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 I mean, there's a lot going on in the show. I think Dan was really helpful in terms of thinking about the different layers of the show because there are poems and they're a key part of the scripting. There's us as people and, you know, we talk directly to the audience. It's a show that very much breaks the fourth wall from the outset yeah um and then there's the fact that you're in a theater space and so you get to use theatrical elements like having a set yeah props. like having props things that you don't get to do in a poetry slam or a poetry mm. reading in the yeah. same way and so it's been really cool to think about each of those on an individual level yeah mm. and how we can weave them together yeah into something that feels like it makes space makes sense in a theater mm. um yeah, yeah. Because we had all these ideas and we spoke about them and Dan kind of, Dan was one of our creative consultants who just helped kind of tie a lot weaves, of those, the, weave, yeah, weave some of those together. things or, yeah. or say, hey, this makes sense and this makes sense together. And yeah. Yeah, mm. totally. Um, so there were two people who listened to the whole show before we ever read it to anyone. And it was Dan and Ken Arkind. Yeah. 
Juicy's also. Oh, yeah. Juicy's basically had heard a she, lot of it. She yeah. was another creative consultant. Yeah, yeah had heard so a lot of the show. It was I don't really think she ever great. sat through. I don't think whole... she sat through the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Which is reasonable. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're a lot. We were a mess. <laughs> we were a particular nightmare. point of time. Um, <clears throat> it's a miracle at times that we're I even know. functioning. I know. Um, and to have like had sold out shows and stuff, I'm just like, I didn't know that anyone was going to come. Like, all right, no, great. and it it was so weird. I think the whole thing that we love about spoken word is you get up on an open mic and you try something that you have just read and just written and you get immediate feedback to it and then you get to work on it there was been in lockdown for years neither of us had performed for over a year yeah and and there was just i don't know there was something about how we survived where it was like we were each doing a couple of solo poems that we they were just tried and tested they were tried and tested i just knew I knew when I got to that moment in the show that I was like, I get to do a poem now that like I will never doubt. Like I mm. know this poem is mm. good and I have seen it impact audiences and I can hold that. And there was nothing of that in Hysterical yeah. because not a single poem. That Jeffra event where we each read, there was a Jeffra event at Basement where we each read one new solo poem from the show yeah. the week before our first Hysterical show. It's that is the time. only time any of that was read to an audience before mm. we got up in Tauranga and did the entire show. Which was our favorite show of tour. It was to so be very good. clear. We loved so far, tour. so far. Yeah, I mean, true. so far, true. Yeah, but also probably because we felt like it was a miracle that we got through yeah, it. Yeah, I with think no I scripts. Think, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that we knew them. And I think we were also shocked. Sorry, we're just vibing right now. No, um, I like it. We have a poem in the show called "Feminist Killjoys," which yes. is hand on heart my favorite poem. Yeah, in the you show. love that poem um, because we get to be very angry during it, and I love that. Mm. Um, People laughed during that poem, and I had no idea that anyone was going to laugh. And it is because no, it makes sense ridiculous. now. It makes yeah. sense to people laughing. But when we were doing it in Liv's living room, screaming, screaming at each other. it, I thought this is the most badass poem ever. And then we never got up would on have stage. expected laughter. Yeah, and I was like, oh my god, this is. But this it's is been, funny. But what? it's been so cool <laughs> to see that to see the way yeah. those poems were interpreted by us when all we'd done was read them to each other millions of times. Millions of times. Versus, oh, someone else gets to interpret this work now. And that's actually super nice. It would be great (laughs) if we could stop trying to figure out what these poems are and let anyone else tell us what they think they are. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, yeah, it was a wild experience for for that reason. (laughs) I love that. I love that. Shout out, Todong. I'm really happy they gave you a good They were so great. We're going back. We're coming back. Torong yeah. has, has <laughs> many difficulties at the moment, so I'm glad that you. Mm. Yeah, mm. and thank you to you because you hooked us up with Hannah, and she's oh, now yeah. called. Oh, yeah. She calls us her best friend now, so oh, we're, yes. t- we're tight. She sent her mom to the show in Nelson, oh, so yeah. oh a dream. Great. I'm loving going to cities, and people are coming up and like, my daughter saw you in this city, and they're like, it's and so cool, this, famous. Yeah, this famous. very cute it's old man in Dunedin came up and was like. And it turned you out to be Mel McCurcher, it's dad. Yeah. And I was like, what is happening? Yeah. It's it. so really cute. nice. That's so cute. Poets supporting poets. Mm. Big time. Big time. So um, for the people who listen to this when it drops, um, can you tell us a little bit about when your Auckland shows are? Mm-hmm. They the- are the 5th to the 9th of July at Basement Theatre at 8 p.m. Yes. We're in the big theater space. We're in the big space. We're downstairs at Basement. I think the other show that was supposed to be on at Basement the same week as us has had to postpone because of COVID. So I now think we're the only show at Basement that week. Come see us. Which means there's no excuse to not just come see us. Yeah, absolutely. One of those nights, you will be free. Yeah. The listener. Speaking to the listener, oh, yeah. you will be free. You will <laughs> be free. We, we won't be free. We'll be doing the show. You must yeah. Be. Yeah. I just don't believe people have plans five nights in a row. <laughs> Surely not. I do. It's, I'm doing yeah, the show. We do. Yeah. <laughs> but you will be at the show. That's, yes, that's exactly. The that's the whole point. Yeah. Come along. It's going to be a good time. Mm. Um, shall we listen to a poem from oh, the yeah. show? Oh, yeah. Let's do a poem from the show. Okay. Let's do it. Okay. Okay, great. This is a poem we wrote completely by accident. Uh, yeah, true. It wasn't supposed to be in the true show. True story. Now it's one of our favorites. 
If you're not hysterical, you're not paying attention. We are two years deep into this pandemic. I have sanitized my hands more times than I've hugged my friends. I don't even have the energy to start a new Netflix show. My phone battery only lasts 20 minutes. No, no one, one is, is merging like a zip on the highway, and I am barely holding it together. If one more person tells me to just calm down or go for yet another walk, I will completely lose it. You want me to send an email? crying you want me to get dressed and attend an in-person meeting absolutely, absolutely not. not you want me to hear the name machine gun kelly one more time no. no you want me to watch another billionaire joyride into space never, never again. again at this point my anxiety has anxiety every, every day, day i am exhausted but i never go to bed any earlier no. because i am too busy worrying about my inability to keep a plant alive and, and how, how we, we will, will ever afford, afford a house in auckland. auckland the fact that we all put clothes on today feels like a miracle i don't ever want to hear the words hot girl summer again i want old lady slug summer where i just live in this body and everyone leaves me alone i want to eat my avocado on toast in peace i want clothes with appropriately sized pockets. I want the city of Auckland to be air conditioned. I want to be a stay-at-home person without any children. I want to be a baby. I want to, my partner to spend half as much time mm -hmm. thinking about cleaning our apartment as, as I, I do. do. I want to own a baby goat. I want a new Adele album every week. I want my 18-year-old knees back. I want to star in a Broadway musical. I want you to know that I am trying. And I am failing. And, and that, that is okay. okay.